I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. A brief reprieve in Gaza. Four-hour daily humanitarian pauses. A ceasefire, though, is still off the table until all hostages are freed. We need to stop the violence now. A son waits for word from his mother held hostage in Gaza. That's coming up on Day 6. Today, when office towers are obsolete... It turns into a ghost town pretty quickly. Calgary's bold move to convert office space to housing. What land acknowledgements leave out. It's not a bad thing, but it's not worth giving you an award for it. Cliff Cardinal on his award-winning one-man play. And Arrested Development's Long Shadow. They're just going to keep embezzling. They're just going to keep misusing company funds. How the Bluths open the TV floodgates to mock the rich. All today on Day 6, the last laugh for the have-nots edition. The first thing I want is information, to know that she's there and alive. Then I would want, you know, efforts to be made to make contact with her, to know that she's well, not just alive. That's Jonathan Zygen talking about his mother, Vivian Silver. Vivian Silver is 74. She was born in Winnipeg. And nearly 50 years ago, she moved to a kibbutz in Israel near the border with Gaza. She did that in order to work towards peace between Israelis and Palestinians. For years, she advocated forcefully for better treatment of Palestinians and a diplomatic solution to the conflict. She also drove Palestinians from Gaza to hospitals in Israel so they could get treatment. On October 7th, Vivian Silver's kibbutz was one of the places Hamas attacked. Her son, Yonatan Zygin, thinks she is among the more than 200 people now being held hostage in Gaza. Yonatan Zygin is in Tel Aviv. Yonatan, good morning. Welcome to the program. Thank you. When did you last speak to your mother, Vivian Silver? Uh, we were talking throughout the morning of the 7th, uh, a little bit uh, on the phone and uh, on text. And uh, I last heard from her, 10.54 was her last message. And at that point, she was aware that people had come into her kibbutz and were trying to attack the people who lived there. So what was the communication that you were having with her at that time? What were you talking about? Well, she knew very early on that Hamas uh, militants came in the kibbutz. She didn't know the scope, and we couldn't understand the magnitude. So we were talking to figure out, to, to try and understand what's going on, to make sense of the messages she's been getting from uh, inside kibbutz network, because people were uh, just desperate for help. She, she saw a lot of messages of uh, desperation. And she also heard a lot of gunshots outside her window and yelling. But uh, we talked as if it's going to be over soon. I mean, you can't 
comprehend something that you couldn't imagine before. So uh, we were talking as if it's going to be over until we understood that it's not. And then we, we said goodbye. We, we wrote messages of, uh, of love and, uh, and uh, parting. We know now that some of her neighbors were being slaughtered while you were having that conversation. But you believe that your mother is still alive, don't you? Yeah, that's our belief. It's true that we can't know that for certain. Even if we did know she was taken, we can't know that she's alive now. But we assume she was taken because her body wasn't found. The house is burnt to the ground, but there's no evidence there of a struggle or bullets or any remains. What was that like for you to go back into her house after you found it burned and incinerated? It wasn't just her house. It's uh, the whole kibbutz. It's, it was like uh, walking through the valley, the shadow of death. It's a harsh experience. Yonatan, your mother moved to this kibbutz on the edge of Gaza expressly so she could work for a peaceful solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. She's somebody who seems to have never lost faith that such a peaceful solution was possible. What do you think that she might be saying to her captors now if they're holding her in Gaza? I can imagine her reasoning with them, trying to work with them on the best outcome. For everybody there, you know, do, doing a think tank. <laughs> because she always believed, you know, that people, if you take away the agendas and politics, ideologies, we're the same. And I believe she could, can see, you know, the humanity in her captors still. Do you think it's possible the October 7th attacks could have changed her mind, could have changed her views? dampened her optimism? Yeah, it's possible. Uh, people who suffer such trauma are affected in different ways. So really hope to see if she had changed or not. But she continued to hold those beliefs. What about you? Did, did your optimism for a peaceful solution carry from, from your mother? Did you hold those views? Yeah. I wouldn't say I was optimistic because... Uh, you know, our reality here in the region is uh, very bleak. But I believed it to be the only option to lead good lives and to be secure. And I still do. Do you agree with the actions that the Israeli government is taking in Gaza right now? No. I don't think you can heal pain with more pain. And I don't think it's constructive in terms of, you know, in the practicality of it. Um, because I can't imagine an end game, right? I mean, what, conquering Gaza and then what? Um, to bring the hostages back, we need words and not guns. And in order for us to have better lives in the future, we need peace and not war. What are your days like now? What, what do you do when you get up in the morning? What, what's your first thought? And, and, and how, do you, how do you keep pushing forward? Um, I go to sleep too late and um, I wake up alert, you know, as if my sleep is like a shot off. It's not the sleeping mode I'm used to. And I wake up and I start, I, it's a full-time job. I hold meetings, I talk to the press, to the foreign press. 
strategize with a work group, go to funerals, shiva calls. This has become my life. If your mother was watching Israel's response right now, in, in terms of the hostages, how do you think she would want Israel to respond? That uh, there needs to be a ceasefire, a release of the hostages, and then entering um, talks uh, you know, with international involvement to create a new reality in the region. The first step of that is the hostages. You know, in my intuition, my logic says they, they can't be released uh, during an attack. Yonatan, your mother is Canadian. She was born in Winnipeg and you have family throughout Canada. What do you want the Canadian government to do? You know, there's the symbolic part that I would want Trudeau to say her name, make it known that uh, Vivian Silver and Judy Weinstein are two Canadian citizens to show the world that they care about them personally. And then there's the actual diplomatic effort that I expect to be made. You know, Canada has embassies in Egypt and in Qatar, and um, I expect them to be very involved in, in the release of hostages. And I suggest to Trudeau, you know, to take a leadership role to be involved in this global issue. This impacts the whole world. Mm -hmm. You know, the world has treated this conflict between Israel and Palestine as a particular event somewhere in the Middle East. But it's not. It's a global issue and we need help to solve it. Did you ever think that your mother living in proximity to Gaza was a safety issue for her? Did you ever wish that she wasn't there in that kibbutz? Well, I myself grew up there. So, no, I was pretty aloof to the um, security issue uh, because Israel built safe rooms from rockets. So I wasn't that concerned. Um, you know, I woke up on the 7th, I woke up to the sound of alarms in Tel Aviv and I tried to continue sleeping. I wasn't that concerned. An incursion wasn't something we could have imagined. Such a strong border, they put in so much money into it, and such a strong army, and it all crumbled. Your mother's neighbors who were killed were people that you knew when you grew up on the kibbutz. What's it like for you now to return there and, and see what, what remains? It's a terrible loss. The kibbutz had to bury 85 people, and there are still bodies unidentified and still around 26 people were considered kidnapped. And it's a community of a thousand people. So it's really a great loss. I just want to ask you, you and your brother both have children. What are they asking you about their grandmother? Uh, I, I have three kids, nine, seven, and five. And he has, uh, Chen has uh, one kid who is four years old. He lives in Connecticut, so I'm not sure how much they're telling him. I don't think they're, uh, he's a part of the situation. My kids uh, are living it with me. They don't really ask a lot because they just know. I told them, and we talk about it and share our feelings and thoughts. Do you imagine when your mother is released that she would want to return to the kibbutz and rebuild? 
Um, again, it's hard to say what kind of woman she will be. She's very invested in the place. That's her, it's her home, it's her community, it's her ideals, it's her center. But I think that something has to change in order for the kibbutz to rise again. We can't go back to the way things were. You had plans to spend the holiday of October 7th with your mother on the kibbutz, and then you canceled those plans. What do you feel about that now? Um, it's a combination of survival's guilt and uh, a feeling of luck, how much I lucked out. I'm so glad that your children are safe today. Yeah. And thank you very much for, for talking to us, and I hope we'll speak again when Vivian Silver is released. Thank you. Yonatan Zygin is the son of Canadian-Israeli peace activist Vivian Silver. He believes she is one of the people being held hostage by Hamas in Gaza. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. I think there needs to be an inquiry into what happened here. Who covered it up? If there was a cover-up. Even though an alleged police assault in Belleville was caught on video, Ontario's police watchdog initially passed on investigating it. Mario Batiste Jr. is from Tyendinaga Mohawk Territory. He was hospitalized after an encounter with the police four years ago. Batiste Jr. says he was tackled to the ground by two officers and lost consciousness. Ontario's Special Investigations Unit declined to look into the incident for 13 months. Charges were eventually laid, and the officers in question are on trial. Now there are calls for an inquiry into why it took so long. And... In order to meet our targets, we need to keep moving and, and keep working hard every day to ensure that we get there. The federal government has committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions to 40% below 2005 levels by the end of this decade. But an environmental audit released this week found that at current rates, we're not going to make it. The environmental commissioner says that's because green initiatives and policies keep getting delayed. This comes as Canada is set to scale up its oil production. Climate scientists predict 2023 will be the hottest year on record. Ottawa is promising a new climate plan by the end of the year. Still to come on day six, the economic karma of arrested development. I'm Brent Bambury. There's a cream with real diamonds in it. I can actually smear diamonds on my face. They borrowed too much money, they rented too much space, they don't have enough people coming in the door, and there's just really no way around that. In the end, WeWork just wasn't working out. The company officially filed for bankruptcy this week after a years-long struggle to turn around its business. WeWork was essentially a souped-up real estate company. It bought up commercial leases in urban centers, renovated the spaces, and then sold short-term office rentals to people who liked the idea of a sleek co-working space with coffee on tap. As recently as 2019, WeWork was the largest commercial leaseholder in both New York City and London, England. And now, in a world struggling to fill empty offices after a global pandemic, WeWork's bankruptcy could leave a big hole in an already struggling market. The loss of WeWork really will increase uh, vacancies. It might even lower rent for tenants, but that means less cash for landlords to pay their debt payments in this high interest rate environment. 
company has already announced plans to terminate multiple Canadian leases, including one in Burnaby, two in Vancouver, and at least two in Toronto, which is already facing a 15 to 20% office vacancy rate. And as office buildings sit empty across North America, many cities are looking to what Calgary is doing for a possible solution. Our goal is to make sure that when a potential tenant approaches and looks at this building, they can't recognize that this was once an office tower. Natalie Marchett is the Manager of Development and Strategy for the City of Calgary. She helped develop an innovative program to convert Calgary's empty office buildings into housing. Natalie, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Natalie, a lot of cities are grappling with sky-high office vacancy rates. This is not a new problem for Calgary. Why are there so many empty commercial buildings in Calgary specifically? Yeah, as you said, many downtowns are struggling with this now. Calgary started struggling with this back in 2014 when we started to see the recession in the oil and gas sector. Downtown Calgary was largely the hub for corporate headquarters for the oil and gas industry. And when that recession hit us, we started to see these buildings emptying out. And year over year, those vacancy rates just kept climbing for us. So we have been struggling with this issue long before the pandemic, whereas other downtowns um, have been hit with this because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. For us, COVID really has compounded the problem, but we've been in it now for almost a decade. Those vacancy rates would have been a huge blow to the tax rate, but but what did it feel like to be in, in the downtown of, of the city when there were, were so many empty offices? Yeah, well, just on the tax rate, the impact of property values just over the downtown core was $16 billion. Wow. Huge impact to tax revenue, but of course, also to the feel and the safety of our downtown. You know, you can imagine 14 million square feet of space that used to be occupied with people coming in and out of the downtown being now vacant. It turns into a ghost town pretty quickly. Right. So it's a major problem with with lots of implications. But you have another issue. Like a lot of other cities, there's a housing crisis. There's a shortage of housing. So many people muse about turning empty offices into apartments. What convinced the city of Calgary that they could actually pull it off? Yeah, so when we started digging into the problem a couple years into this recession, when we realized this was different and many indications that it it wouldn't come back the way it used to. And so we started having the conversation about what are we going to do with these office buildings that may never be occupied with office workers ever again. So this idea, firstly, of repurposing buildings for different use, and also this idea that we had an opportunity to really reinvent Calgary's downtown Mm -hmm. and move away from sort of this monoculture of a commercial core. And so building in residential use to our downtown core is critical to having that round-the-clock vibrancy and activity for the community. Let's talk about what happens when you take it on then. What what happens when you start pulling down office walls to see whether you can build a bedroom wall in its place? <laughs> yeah, and I'm not a construction manager, so I, I can't get into the too many of the specifics, but I can tell you that from the projects that we have had um, in our program, of which now there are 10 approved, each one is incredibly unique. Mm. When you open up these buildings, many of which are from the 70s, the 80s, you really don't know all of what you're going to find. You're not sure what the ultimate cost will be until you really get in there. So not all of these buildings downtown 
can be converted to residential. There are some very specific layouts and floor plates and designs that support the repurposing from office into residential space. So for instance, windows are really critical when you're thinking about unit types and layouts and how many bedrooms you can get in there and all of that. And so access to light within these units makes the layouts of these floors really challenging. Figuring out things even like plumbing lines uh, when you're dealing with existing stacks and you're dealing with existing core infrastructure can be really challenging and expensive. So there's so many pieces that come into that. And as I said, every every project has proven to be really unique in what strategies they've all needed to take on to make these projects viable. But you have 10 projects that are now at some stage of work or being completed. How many housing units are you expecting to create from those 10 projects? So from the 10, we will be bringing online just under 1,400 new dwelling units to the downtown. And at this time, we expect there will be roughly 180 of those units that are offered at below market rents. Hmm. And and do you think it's going to be hard to get people to live in them? They, they'll be the pioneers in some way. They'll be the first people that, that will live in, in what you just described as a, as a kind of empty zone. Absolutely. And so that's part of the risk for these property owners. It is going to be a new market for downtown Calgary, and we don't know for sure what the uptake will be. However, I can tell you these projects are not going to feel like 1980s office buildings. They are very high quality. They will be beautiful spaces. We're doing a lot of work with the developers around you know, the unit layouts and making sure that these are places that people want to call home. So I feel quite confident that they'll get scooped up pretty quickly. And the other beautiful thing about these conversion projects, aside from the sort of true affordable rents, is because they're not new builds, there's inherent affordability in these rentals. But you made a decision that you weren't going to impose standards when it came to certain green or or environmentally conscious standards or uh, allocate uh, affordable housing as as, as one of the, uh, the, the requirements. Did people push back and say that city dollars should be allocated to, to buildings that, that look at those standards that, that, that adhere to them? Absolutely. So, you know, this is um, municipal money and we had those conversations when we were developing the program around how many city priorities should we require through this program? And of course, housing affordability and building sustainability are two critical priorities for the city of Calgary. However, at the time that we built this program back in 2021, we were laser focused on the crisis at hand in the downtown, which was the vacancy rate, which at that time was nearing 34%, which as I said, had massive impact on property values and tax revenue for the city. Mm-hmm. And so we made a conscious decision to keep the program focused on that particular crisis. And the results I think of keeping it simple and not layering the program with other requirements has been such huge response to our program. We've been oversubscribed ever since we launched in 2021. Hmm. And I will say that even though we didn't require affordable housing and we didn't require building sustainability measures beyond the building code, many of these projects have those aspects built in already. So many of these projects are accessing CMHC financing and they're using the avenue of providing affordable units. So that's where we get that roughly 180 units of the 10 that that will be offered below market 
rents. And that's being done without the city requiring it. And then because these buildings are, again, from the 70s, from the 80s, they have to be brought up to uh, code standards, which inherently improves their climate resiliency. So all of these things are happening naturally without the city making it a requirement and making the process onerous and maybe unattractive for building owners to come to the table. And it seems that the main tool that you used here was a subsidy that you were offering to, to those who, who, who were, wanted to take on one of these renovations. Calgary certainly not alone looking at these problems of, of office vacancy. So have you been getting calls from mayors or city planners in other parts of the world talking about what Calgary is doing? Absolutely. We get we get calls, you know, maybe every week. <laughs> I don't, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. People all across North America, Canada and the States have been calling us. People have been coming to visit us and see what we're doing and learn about this program. Um, and again, you know, we unfortunately were ahead of the game because of our recession. And now a lot of downtowns, because of the pandemic and the fact that this is now such a widespread problem, it's not just a Calgary problem, um, they're able to learn from us about how we got to where we are now. And I do expect where we will see similar programs start to pop up across cities all across North America and, and maybe globally. Um, we've had reach as far as Paris, people reaching out to us. So um, this really is an international story, an example for you know, how, how you can address this massive problem that downtowns are facing. Natalie Marchett, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Natalie Marchett is the Manager of Development and Strategy for the City of Calgary. Now the story of a wealthy family who lost everything and the one son who had no choice but to keep them all together. It's hard to believe it's been 20 years since Arrested Development first hit the airwaves. It's Arrested Development. It was a show about an offbeat, dysfunctional family called the Bluths and how they cope when this happens. Bluth Development Company President George Bluth was arrested tonight for defrauding investors and using the company as his personal piggy bank. The characters trying to stay afloat after their family wealth evaporates are deeply unlikable and pretty weird. Like a magician, sorry, illusionist, who's been blacklisted for giving away his secrets. Do you consider this to be a little trick? Uh, did you just squirt me with something? It's lighter fluid. But still, where did the lighter fluid come from? Like these characters, this show had its own turbulent journey. It was canceled after three seasons. Then Netflix brought it back for two more. The reboots didn't land with audiences in quite the same way. But writer Carly Silverman says that 20 years on, Arrested Development continues to influence the TV landscape. Arrested Development first premiered in 2003. So what was going on around this time was... The closing bell told the end for Enron. 77-year-old John Regas, founder of Adelphia, carted out in handcuffs. WorldCom admits it falsified profits. The Enron scandal and the Adelphia scandal. And so we enter into this period of economic unrest and corporate distrust. So... Ron Howard and Imagine kind of see this going on and think like, oh, wouldn't it be kind of interesting to do a show around this? They bring in Mitch Hurwitz and what they end up doing is creating a family sitcom. What comes before anything? What have we always said is the most important thing? Breakfast. Family. 
Family, right? Yeah. <laughs> I thought you meant the things you eat. Arrested Development was kind of very early in terms of treating corporate America as the punchline, something that's very consistent in shows like Two Broke Girl, Shit's Creek, is that there's this narrative that to kind of get back to where we were, to get back on top, to earn money, you gotta do things the right way. We gotta make this business honest. We have to be self-made. And in shows like Shit's Creek, they do this in kind of an optimistic way. He's managed to create in this town something truly winsome. The Rose name on another plucky young business. The characters can build things right and turn things around. Whereas in Arrested Development, you can free up a little company money to get back our golf privileges. No, I can't. Mom, you don't even play golf. They're just going to keep embezzling. They're just going to keep misusing company funds. It's probably more similar to something like Succession. I mean, Succession is a great show. And there is this kind of heightened drama to it. But Arrested Development kind of strips all that grandeur away. You know, you think of prison as this place full of guilty people and it doesn't bother you that much. But if Pop-Pop could be there, then anybody could be there. And I know I act tough, but I... Is this what you're worried about? Because, you know, I got news. He's, uh, he's guilty. He is? Oh, yeah. Incredibly guilty. Especially in America, where I do think we have this kind of optimistic belief that you can pull yourself up from your bootstraps, and if you're rich, you earned it, that there is something satisfying to being like, okay, well, these folks that did all these bad things, these rich folks were criminals. That's why they lost everything. The characters are unlikable. Even the characters you're supposed to like are unlikable. Michael is the most ethical of the adult members of the family. Maybe you're gonna come with me to work today. You're gonna be my daughter. You're gonna have a role model in your life who is honest, who doesn't steal, doesn't lie, and I don't know, watch entertainment news. He's like incredibly smug and annoying. They're interested in money. They're interested in power. They're interested in their appearance. There's a cream with real diamonds in it. I can actually smear diamonds on my face and it's, it's only $400 a tub. That's like, what, like a million diamonds for $400? And I think in times when there's a lack of trust in money, in wealth, in corporations, I think that's what an audience wants to see. Uh, although the ratings would have told you otherwise at the time. There are certainly things that date the show. It has many allusions and jokes and references to the war in Iraq. Meet Starla, the new Blue Company business model. To Saddam Hussein, to the Bush family. And there are some things that haven't aged well. However, I do think the humor and the style have aged incredibly well. It's got a silliness and a sharpness that's rare to find in one show. The fact that they have Liza Minnelli on the show, whose whole character is like a rich lady with vertigo who keeps falling. You're okay, you're okay, we're okay, we're okay. Somebody will be here. There's the fact that like Tobias is a never nude. Give me the suit. I'm actually wearing it right now. I, I can't tell you why. You're wearing it right now. I have to wear it all the time. You'd, you'd never understand. Oh, please, I'll never. I'll never understand. Who just like wears 
Daisy Dukes under all of his clothes, or that he's constantly painted blue for, like, a lot of the second season because he's on standby for the Blue Man Group. I mean, it's a, it's a very wacky show. It kind of was ahead of its time in a lot of ways. It was ahead of its time in kind of this rewatchability of the show. Little small things that you might not notice on a first watch, which is in an age when you don't even have DVR, it's almost insane. And this kind of blend tonally of really sharp, smart dialogue and satire with farcical, cartoony humor. I, I definitely think Arrested Development was early on this and would spawn a, a big legacy of those types of shows. Carly Silverman is a writer in Brooklyn. She wrote about Arrested Development for Paste Magazine. Still to come on Day 6, riff from the headlines, our weekly quiz, and your best bet to bag a Day 6 bag. Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. Listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts. Also at cbc.ca slash day6. They asked me to do the land acknowledgement today. I hate land acknowledgements. I find them so goddamn patronizing. You want me to come up here with my feathers and my beads, bless your little event, tell you you're woke? So I said I'd be delighted. That's Cree and Lakota playwright and actor Cliff Cardinal from an onstage performance of his one-man play called Land Acknowledgements, or As You Like It. The original version of the show premiered at Crow's Theatre in Toronto in 2021. It was billed as a staging of Shakespeare's As You Like It, called As You Like It, a Radical Retelling. When the curtain came up, Cliff Cardinal began with his land acknowledgement, and he just never stopped. The result is a 90-minute play-slash-rant-slash-stand-up routine about why Cliff hates land acknowledgements and what we should be doing instead. This week, Cliff Cardinal won a Governor General's Award in the drama category for As You Like It, a radical retelling. I spoke to Cliff Cardinal about his play in March. Your show is 90 minutes long, but in 30 seconds, can you tell us why you don't like land acknowledgements? I think that they don't go far enough. I don't think that by raising your hand and saying that you acknowledge the original caretakers of the land, you're doing a service to anybody, uh, except for yourself and your own little feelies. Um, I think that if you really want to acknowledge the people of the land, you should have a relationship with the Indigenous community. We should see you at, at uh, the powwow. We should see you at the Native Centre, um, not just paying lip service to some sort of virtue signaling hogwash that they've put down on a piece of paper for you. But is it really hogwash? Like, how can it not be a good thing to remind people that the land that they're gathering on is contested? It's not a bad thing 
but it's it's not worth giving you a, an award for it. <laughs> you know, like um, what if you if you're saying that it's somebody else's land, give it to them. You know, if generally if you, you if you're somewhere you're not supposed to be, you don't stand there and wave your hand about it. You just put your ski mask on and, and head back out. <laughs> when you first put on this show with Crow's Theater, some people apparently thought they were going to see as you like it as soon as you wrapped up the land acknowledgement. What happened when it dawned on the audience that there wasn't going to be any Shakespeare? Some people were thrilled because a lot of people, Brent, really hate Shakespeare. <laughs> they, don't, they, they, they came to see it because, you know, their partner dragged them along or, um, you know, who knows why. I have no idea why people buy Shakespeare, but they did. And then when they found out it was, and some people, of course, were really upset because um, they showed up. This guy comes out for the land acknowledgement. They don't like him. They have no idea who he is. And then he just goes on and on for 85 minutes about things that they don't want to hear about. So I, I can see that some people weren't thrilled. Right. But at what minute, like at what minute in the land acknowledgement did, did they understand that there was going to be a lot more coming? To be honest, the people who, who were upset, I don't think they ever understood. Right, right. Okay. Okay. Well, when, when I was at your show last week at, at Toronto CAA at Mervish Theatre, you push the audience in a playful way. And then later, you push them much more forcefully. How far can you go in asking your audience tough questions, but still expecting them to stay with you? You have to be able to keep them imagining, keep, their, keep, keep the people's uh, imagination engaged in what, you're in what they're listening to. Um, if you say something too harsh or that they're not ready to follow, um, then they're, they're, they're going to walk out on you, you know, mentally. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's you got to really, I'm trying to really be engaged with people and listen to the quality of the silence and the punctuation of the laughter and know, okay, they're not ready to go with me there. Yeah, and, and I mean, you're asking them questions. You're really asking the audience questions and they answer you back. But the night that I was there, just after you attacked the Catholic Church, the Pope, and the missionary oblates of Mary Immaculate, who played a key role in running residential schools, an audience member pushed back on you. Do you remember that? I sure do. <laughs> what did you say to that person? Um, oh, I, I don't remember what I said. What was really interesting about it was they, there were 40 Catholic educators there huh. that night. Yeah. And they told her to shut up. <laughs> like the audience started yelling at her. And then I, you know, I tried to let her know that, hey, it's okay to be upset about this. Right. I'm upset too. Right. You know, we should, we should, let's be here together and be upset rather than you going off your way and saying he's an asshole and me walking off this way and saying they're, they're crazy. Yeah. You did not tell this person to shut up, but, but this is, you said something like this, Cliff. You said, you said, don't you think I have sat where you're sitting now and listened to things that have made me angry? And then you said, I have. So. Let's agree to disagree and continue. I think we did agree to disagree. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious about what, what have you sat at and listened to that made you angry? Oh, well, I mean, I've sat through 10th grade history class. I've sat through, you know, racist dinner parties. Um, I've sat through uh, the national anthem and the Lord's Prayer enough times in sickening circumstances um, that, uh, that I, I, I get it. I get it. I've been lied to. You know, we all have. To be an indigenous person in this country means that we are, we are surviving in a system that tried to kill us. So, yeah, I, I've choked on a lot of lies. But it, it was really amazing to me that you used that moment of identification 
with this person rather than a, a moment where you could have done what you, you said the Catholic educators did to, to them <laughs> and tell, told them to get lost, right? And Because it's your show she's interrupting. It's not theirs. Well, there's this thing about this. It's part of like, you know, a cancel culture thing where, you know, we go, oh, well, you don't agree with me. Well, you must be a bigot. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's because you're bad. And I, I mean, like, like you said, like, I know I'm pushing buttons. I know I'm pushing, I'm pushing the audience to think about things from a perspective that they don't normally. And so if I, if I bring you out there, um, I should be able to at least throw you something to, to, to get you back to shore. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's really interesting how much you focus on actions as opposed to gestures in, in, in the play. And you talk about the difference between hashtagging an orange square on social media and writing a check to your local native services outlet. And I think I know which one you think people should do, but, <laughs> but do, do you think that people will actually get to actions if they don't start with gestures? Maybe, you're, maybe you're right. Um, but also sometimes the gesture goes, okay, well, I've, I did the land acknowledgement. So I'm going to now climb back into my Mercedes and drive off to my hillside mansion and, and think I did a good job. Right. Well, during the show, you also acknowledge being in an establishment theater and you poke some fun at very, very powerful corporate sponsors. So when you're talking to that audience, you're speaking to a very privileged slice of liberal Canada. You know, you know that's my way of soliciting donations from them. <laughs> you think I'm off base there? Let's just tell people what you're doing. Okay, so you name three very powerful banks, but you know, I would, ha I would have to describe your gesture when you, when you say that, when you name them as kind of a sneer, right? I don't know. What, do, you, do you think they're going to give you money? Are they going to write a check now? Um, abs absolutely. I, I believe it in their hearts. I've heard their land acknowledgements. I know they care. <laughs> um, well, what would I say? No. No, of course. Not. Yeah. Just because this, just because this bank, you know, absolutely helps run pipelines through indigenous land, you know, rips through, uh, treaties and destroys, um, destroys rivers with their affiliation with chemical companies. D does that mean I'm going to not take their money if they offered it? And, and don't get me wrong, they haven't. Right. But if they did, uh, you know, we are living in a very conflicted society. I contradict myself many times in the play, you know, because, because he, I don't know the truth. I don't know you, Brent, and you've seen the show, and so you know a little bit more about me, but we as community members and individuals, we don't know each other, and we need to stop thinking that we've got it, we've got it pegged. But, 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 okay, but you are, you know that when you're in a certain environment, you have some idea of who the people in that environment are going to be. So, so when you're in this, this particular theater, which is an established theater, uh, how much is your message tuned to that demographic? You make a lot of jokes about people in the expensive seats, for example, oh. going back to their houses in Rosedale. To be honest, yeah, not at all. I don't, I don't know them at all. Like I'm, t I'm talking above their heads. I'm talking to indigenous people. I'm talking, um, you know, I, I really don't understand the subscription base of, of a big theater or, or who shows up to these things. I'm putting on shows where I'm trying to tell the truth as I see as from my perspective. So I, I guess, I guess they have shown up. Um, but it's, um, they, the, you have to be able to have a sense of humor about yourself to have a good time at one of my shows. And, um, I hope they have. When you talk about the relationships between indigenous people and everyone else, you explore a few possibilities. You say we could be friends, we could be allies, we could be family. We could be in a toxic relationship, a 150-year toxic relationship. Yeah, it's up to us. 
And which which one of those three is most preferable and which one is least? Well, I think that, um, you know, getting sneered at at the Tim Hortons is not the way to go forward. We've tried that enough, um, back you know, back and forth. Um, I think that discluding each other from our homes, from our ceremonies, from our holidays is has gone far enough. Um, and I think that um, calling yourself an ally is just for you. It's for your own feelings. It's for the ally. It's not for the person that they're allied with. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if you really want to get involved, if you really want to, if you really care about these things that you profess to, you should be friends. You know, you should, you know... Because look, every, it's so easy to say, well, history is long, and so history is a story of one culture displacing another. Mm-hmm. But that ignorant, uncultured, unsophisticated view of history, like, of course that's true. Of course one culture comes in and moves and, and, and displaces another, but this culture is still here. There are 1.67 million of us in Canada, mm-hmm. and there and there are still, you know problems and conflicts on treaties on lands that we're dealing with and for you to say oh well why don't they just get over it we're still here you know if you had an indigenous friend if you had indigenous family if you had a a, a step a foot inside the indigenous community you wouldn't think such stupid things about the land, the land that we acknowledge in land acknowledgements, you say in the play, the land will be fine. <laughs> so what would you like the person experiencing the land acknowledgement to acknowledge instead? That we, I mean, that, that we, sh- we should know each other. We should make an effort to know each other. We should, the land that we have, the, the commitment to the land should be in our relationships with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's, a lot of Catholic, there's a lot of Christian Catholic people in this country you know, you guys got a thing called do unto others. I think that you, they've forgotten about it. I think that's this one thing that you, they learned on the first day and then forgot. Mm-hmm. And we have a thing called all my relations, which means that we're all related. You know, we believe in similar things. We should be able to get together on these things. Cliff, how is Shakespeare like MDMA? Well, I wouldn't pay for it. <laughs> but sometimes it's free. <laughs> You know, that's the thing that this, the, the Shakespeare part of it is something that Chris Abraham was really into because Chris Abraham is just this, he's a brilliant Shakespeare director. And so, um, he, he's, he really could see that the idea of as you like it would, it's about these, these people who leave the city to go into the forest to solve the problems of the city. Uh And it's a lighthearted pastoral kind of skipping affair. Yeah. Um, and so it seemed to be the perfect kind of show to do. And I have no idea because, look, I, I, can't, I, I, I can't afford to go to the Stratford. The only times I have been there with when I was in theater school. And I find Shakespeare so goddamn boring. <laughs> like, it's just so, it has nothing to do with me. And I understand that, you know, the, the central themes of, you know, of jealousy or, or you know, honor, you know, they, they, do, they, they do touch on each other's lives. Um, but not as much as like a Star Wars movie, mm-hmm. you know, like um, that being said, although I think that most of the stuff is crap, uh, I do want to reach out to anyone at Stratford and let them know that I have a great new adaptation of William Shakespeare's As You Like It. <laughs> and I would love to come down there and, and, and play it for them. Cliff, it was great to talk to you. I enjoyed your show so much. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks. I was just kidding about all that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> See you, Cliff. See you, man. Thanks a lot. Playwright and actor Cliff Cardinal's one-man play is called Land Acknowledgements or As You Like It. Cliff won the Governor General's Award for Drama this week. That interview first aired in March. from the headlines. And here it is, Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you could win a Day 6 tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. I want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't want to be fat and weak. Oh no, oh no. I want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I want a manly physique. Give it back. Tony Braxton, Valentina Blue with accent and the arrogant worms, and I want to look like Arnold. And Andrew Vamos of London, Ontario, guessed the headline that we're looking for. Arnold Schwarzenegger revealed that he once hired an accent removal coach and probably should have asked for his money back. Congratulations, Andrew. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer, put riff from the headlines in the subject, and send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address because one right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Hockey and bread the greatest players, Kresge to Crosby. Time, weather, and... from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Annie Bender, Sarah Melton, and Pedro Sanchez. Our digital producer is Paul Hentiuk. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. It's three days to the Northwest Territories election, six days to the U.S. government shutdown deadline, and seven days till we meet again on Day 6. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.